0: Hello and welcome to Nightlight. At my age, I'm growing increasingly aware of the danger of growing older without growing wiser. I won't explain why I'm saying that. It just is what it is. <laughs> it's painful to see areas in me that have not changed. Now, that can be a morbid introspective focus that is not helpful, or it can be. An awareness brought by the Holy Spirit for me to begin to focus on those particular areas and cooperate with Him in dealing with it. We can tell the difference between whether it's morbid introspection or whether it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit by one simple examination. Morbid introspection brings depression, confusion, frustration, and fruitlessness. Conviction brings insight, understanding, and energy, and life. We change from one level of glory to another by the Spirit of the Lord working with and in us. Now, notice, though, it's it's with and in us, not just in us. We're not mere lumps with no participating part to play in how we grow and develop. We'll talk more about that partnership with the Holy Spirit and how that works in a more practical way in just a little bit. But for now, I want to awaken us to the issue that we all know as maybe we don't want to think about. Time is passing. There are things in us that we all are not pleased with. We maybe have tried to deal with them the best we could Maybe intensely, maybe over a long period of time, but we reached a point of giving up. Now, God's never playing games with us. If we seem to hit a brick wall in areas, it's because there are things in us that need to be brought to the end of themselves. It may upset us at first to realize that God may resist our, quote, best efforts, only because he's trying to bring us to a deeper place of submission and trust in his working on our behalf. Those who have been through that process, often more than once, they can tell you it was hard to go through, but they are very grateful once they've gone through it because the fruit of this process is cleansing and freedom and a deeper intimacy with the Lord. And it may take sometimes years Now, on the other hand, there are aspects of our lives that maybe we have not tried to deal with, or we have, in our own strength, failed. And then, rather than come to the cross more broken and more desperate, we have opted for failure in that area. It's just the way it is. I gave it my best, and there was no getting past it, so there it is. But the real truth is that on one level we wanted to change, but on a deeper, more decisive level, we didn't. We simply liked the place and don't really want to change all that much. Now, if you think I'm about to go into some message about how you just need to get serious and try harder and remember all, you know, if you think that's where we're going, no. God never is calling us to try harder, grit our teeth, and engage our willpower. Everything he calls us to is in union with him. He doesn't do all of it for us, and we don't do all of it for him. Scripture already spells it out in Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that. <laughs> That statement's not helpful and may even be hurtful if it's not properly understood and if it's not read in connection with the next part of the verse, which says, for it is God in you that is working to will and to do his good pleasure. We'll look at the next verse in a moment, but first let's get a handle on what it means to quote, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean you better get your act together because God will make you suffer if you don't. Translations and the demeanor of preachers when they deliver sermons on this text can all mix in with our own childhood fear of authority figures and fear of punishment and produce a totally wrong idea of what Scripture is saying. Paul, When Paul uses the phrase fear and trembling, it's a colloquialism. A figure of speech, like we might say, you have to walk on eggshells when you're around him. Quote. Paul is not telling them to walk on eggshells around God, of course. I'm just using the eggshells illustration to show the way the term fear and trembling can be a colloquialism like walking on eggshells. Just for some proof, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, Paul speaks of the Corinthians and to the Corinthians, receiving Titus with fear and trembling when he came to minister to them. Obviously, that doesn't mean they were terrified of Titus and afraid of what he would do to them. The woman in Mark chapter 5 with the issue of blood was healed. It says that she came and stood before Jesus and with fear and trembling spoke to him. She'd just been healed. She's in shock and awe, and I'm sure joyfully grateful. And Mark uses the phrase fear and trembling as a shortcut phrase to illustrate how she was feeling. Surely she was not terror-stricken. Again, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, where he explains that when he first came to the Corinthians to preach, he did so in fear and trembling. It simply means he came aware of his weaknesses and aware of their need, and the conflict in him over that awareness produced in him that proper humility and compassion that was needed to faithfully preach the gospel and give himself to them as their servant. Don't conjure up any image of Paul weakly, trembling with fear and insecurity as he preaches to the Corinthians. That's obviously not the point. So how are we to understand work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? J.B. Phillips' translation says it best. Work out the salvation God has given you with proper awe and responsibility, Phillips translates it. In other words, take seriously what God has done for you, and from that place, you can work out work on, work through whatever difficult places that are still a problem in your character by living in awe, not fear, and response to God when he prompts you, not trembling. The same Paul that wrote Fear and Trembling told Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7, but of love and power and a sound, stable mind. And John the Apostle, uh, the closest to Jesus, says as clearly as language can make it, that fear is tormenting because it releases or relates to the fear of of punishment. But perfect love casts out all fear. Love and fear are ultimately in opposition to each other. And God is love. When we understand this properly, then this verse brings joy and hope instead of dread and anxiety. Just an aside here, though it's right on target with the present point. Translations are the product of men's best understanding of the spirit of the message. That's why we need to read translations, and also we need to interact with each other. See, the New Testament never intended us to just privately read our Bibles. We, we we read the Scriptures and then we interact with each other and the Holy Spirit, who is the giver of life, brings us into living lessons so that as we work through things in our relationship with other people, the truth of Scripture is fleshed out and incarnated. So just sitting in a corner reading and gathering information is not going to produce the the intended results that the Holy Spirit is describing in the very scriptures that we're reading. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Uh, And then ultimately, we base everything we read on the revelation of the character of God, which is revealed in Jesus Christ, who is himself God. And the work of the cross, everything has to bow to him and be interpreted by what he did at the cross. When John fell trembling before Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, the first thing Jesus does as he speaks to John is he reaches out to him, and then he says, John, don't be afraid. Fear destroys our ability to live, to move, and have our being. It's good to be afraid of God if you don't know any better because it will lead you maybe to repentance to some degree. But as you turn from sin and see Him more clearly, you will find fear is giving way to awe, which leads to worship, which leads to love. So if we understand fear and trembling now, <laughs> I hope, let's go on to the next part of Paul's statement. Knowing that it is God who is working in you to do his good pleasure. This would require an entire study separate on its own, but can we see that when Paul is saying, uh, when you take the verse in its entire context, it would go like this. Now, I'm, I'm about to be gone from you. As you used to obey in my presence, then keep obeying all the more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. The word obey here does not have any relationship whatsoever to keeping rules and being afraid of punishment if you don't, which is what most of us think when we hear the word obey. The word here means, okay, you saw how this works by the way I lived in front of you when I was with you, And you began to learn to live that way, too. So now that I'm no longer going to be with you, keep walking in that truth all the more. Work things out with God in a relationship with him so that you can learn for yourself by experience that he loves you, lives in you, and is energizing things for you in order to fulfill his will in your life, which is all for your best. I could go off track here and take a needed side road addressing the great problem of pharisaical legalism, which has so often taken over and hijacked the message of Scripture. If there's any way to interpret a verse in a dark, foreboding, damning way, those kinds of folks can do it even when the obvious, loving, encouraging interpretation makes a lot more sense and provides a lot more encouragement and help. It may be, at least in some cases, that hearing the dark, dire, damning interpretation of Scripture all the time has been what has contributed to our loss of hope, so we just give up working on some weak area of our character because it's just too painful. The very reason Paul warns fathers, for instance, in both Ephesians and Colossians, not to be overly harsh with their children is so they will not, the children will not become discouraged and disheartened and give up. Now do you think God, who inspired Paul's words about that subject, understands his own principle? Paul calls him in second Corinthians, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. The word comfort does not mean only to be comforted in a coddling sort of way, but it does include the element of what we normally tend to think of as comfort. The other meaning of comfort comes from a word that refers to being surrounded and strengthened for battle, a protecting fortress, comfort. But still, You can't be strengthened for battle at all if you have no inner sense of being loved, accepted, and provided for. So we need both meanings of the word comfort. If God instructs Paul to instruct fathers not to overwhelm their children with harsh criticism, scary threats, and dire warnings so that they won't become discouraged and give up, I'm sure God takes his own advice Seriously, on that same subject, he doesn't want you to be discouraged, overwhelmed with thoughts of your own failure and weakness, driven to despair by threats of punishment. By how many preachers, myself included, uh, have have been guilty of this very kind of thing, in the name of preaching the truth? Now, then, on the other hand. What about those of us, and I bet it's the same group, because we all have this mixture in all of us. We've got both sides of this going on. Those of us who at times give up and give in to our fleshly desires to escape doing the difficult things of life, and who begin to fade off into self-indulgence or self-pity or passivity or entertainment or amusement, and let the tide of the world, the flesh, and the devil just take us where it will. If you're a parent, or if you have watched care for any young person that you love, you know the difficult balance you have to maintain between loving affection and loving discipline. Now notice I did not say there's a battle between love and discipline. There is no such thing as a counterbalance for love Love is everything. So our affection should be loving and our discipline should be loving. Our correction, training, and chastening should always manifest love. God is love. Everything he does is out of love. His correction and training and chastening is out of love. That you and I cannot see that at the time it's happening to us in our training is Nothing new and nothing really that hard to understand. Think of your own children who cry out, I don't see why you have to be this way. Or when you tell them no about something, uh, you, you, you know it's not for their good if you give in to it. There's no mystery about that. Yet, until it comes to us and our Father in heaven, then it gets all mysterious You're not so old that you don't remember your own feelings when parental wisdom was protecting you from yourself. So the Father has to comfort us both ways, sometimes in gentle affection, and other times, maybe most times, in the more prodding, motivating, disciplining ways. These ways are just as loving as the comforting ways and maybe are even more so because, as you know, in dealing with your own children, it takes more exerting of love to deal in discipline than it takes to snuggle. God may be more like that than we know. Maybe it actually takes more of God's exerting of himself to love us that way than it does to just hold us. Here's a hard fact of reality about human nature taken from the writings of a wise and experienced pastor of a hundred years ago. He says that after being beside the deathbeds of many numbers of his parishioners and others, he came to be aware that regardless of the age of the person, except in cases of extreme physical pain, there was no awareness of the approach of death in these people. He describes many of them as having general conversations about all sorts of relatively unimportant things as the moment of death arrived. If they were godly people, the conversations were godly. If they were worldly-minded and indifferent to the things of the Lord, they they were exactly that way as the very moment of death approached. For instance, it is said of P.T. Barnum that As he drew his last breath, he was asking how the circus tickets had gone that day. Now, whether that's true or a fable used as a sermon illustration, it seems true in my own experience also that dying people die like they lived. For as they are dying, they are not conscious necessarily of being in a transition from one world to the next. As I said, unless there was some extreme case of uh, physical trouble or pain or excessive drama going on. I mention that only to say that if we are that obtuse about the closing moments of life, how much more are we able to avoid important issues when we're not dying, at least not dying immediately? There's a loving mercy in the design of the passing of time and the decay of things, and the way we all seem to get frustrated and flustered at change. I I say it way more than I used to say it. Uh, I used to get amazed at my grandparents for saying these things, and I say them far more. How did you grow so fast? How could you be this old? How could I be this old? I saw who I thought was Fred yesterday, but it turned out It wasn't Fred, it was Fred's grandson. But he looked just like Fred. How could Fred have a grandson? We're all the same, aren't we? On and on. The grass withers, the flower fades. Our life is but a vapor. Teach us to number our days so we can present to you a heart of wisdom. All my times are in your hands. You make all things beautiful in your time. These and many other words of scripture echo the cry in all of our hearts for time to stop so we can catch our breath and try to hold on to what we know is our world, our loved ones, our very selves. But it's no use. It zooms past us. See, your present moment you were in just now has just zoomed past you. Just just as I said the word zoom. See, there it goes again. Where did it go? Into a high reality. You and I will meet again one day called the final judgment. Now, you may say, I knew he would get to it eventually. We're going to talk about the dreadful danger of the coming judgment. No, we're not. At least I'm not. The dreadful day of coming judgment is dreadful and it is coming, but it is not coming for you who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and who have yielded yourself to Him, John tells us we are to have boldness in the day of judgment. The first John chapter four verse seventeen. How could that be? Aren't we supposed to approach the the day like the ten woodsmen approached the Wizard of Oz, clanking and rattling in fear and trembling? Well, only if you choose to remain ignorant of love. If you don't want to grow in love, then you can actually get to experience the ten woodman thing before the Wizard of Oz, at least for so long as you remain ignorant of love. But exposure to perfect love will soon put your trembling at rest. But evidently, Scripture expects us to learn love earlier than that, so it says that on the day of judgment, we are to have boldness. Now, what is boldness? Well, back up to verse 16, then read on to verse 18, which we prefer we've already referred to previously. Perfect love casts out all fear. We pointed that out. John says, "We have come to know." Notice it's a process. We didn't know at first, but we are beginning to come to know. We are being taught by the Holy Spirit. And he is bringing us more and more into the awareness of the experience of what real love is. And who real love is. We have come to know and believe. See, we've come to know it and we're coming to believe it. Which implies that you have a hard time believing it. And you do, don't you? We have a hard time believing we are loved. We're coming to know and believe the love God has for us. Did you get that? We have come to know and believe the love God has for us. John had to come to understand it, even after being right in Jesus' arms for three and a half years, that he that he he had to come to both know it and then believe it. This lack of love in John is why he was at first called the Son of Thunder. That's Jesus' nickname for him. I've always imagined uh, a smile on Jesus' face as he would refer to John that way. Remember when John wanted to call fire down on the village that had rejected them when they came? Jesus probably didn't smile then, but he was still aware of this little young son of thunder who wanted to kill people for the glory of God. And he said to John, Son, you don't know what spirit you are of. I didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Do you get the, the, the most of the Western church in the immature stage of spiritual development Is very much like John wanting to call fire down on people. Kill off a few million pagans, even with fire, all for the glory of God. You hear this, Clay? Uh, That's an aside for now. (laughs) John goes on to say, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. In this way, in what way? In, the, in coming to understand that you are loved, that God is love and you're loved. In this way, love has become perfected among us. See, the Greek is not speaking about individuals, although, yes, God does do this in and for us as individuals, but it's worked out and manifested among us in our interactions. That's why the same book of John uh, the stresses you can't love God and, and hate your brother. So he says, as a result of this love working in and among us, we may have boldness, or the word is confidence, translated in other translations, confidence in the day of judgment. For as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. One translation said so the Greek, the, see the Greek underscores this is a process. Perfect love drives out fear because fear is tormenting. Those who fear are not yet secure in love. You know, it's funny. It's not really funny, but it is funny. If a guy's having a heart attack, you know, the emergency workers don't say to him calm down sir you're having a heart attack I'm having a heart attack and that's kind of the way it is with this this message here about perfect love casts out fear because fear is related to fear of punishment punishment uh, (laughs) the word has punishment that verse has punishment in it and the only thing people who live in fear and legalism see in the verse is the punishment or the fear the, the, The verse is talking about casting out fear. There is no fear because there is no punishment because God is not looking to punish you. And all they hear is punish. Heart attack. I'm having a heart attack. Ah, you're giving me a heart attack. Now that I hope we understand fear versus love a bit better, I can get to my original point of this message, which we haven't gotten to yet. How do we put sin to death in us, in the areas where we have not been able to overcome certain discouraging issues in our character? I can tell you from long and sad experience with both myself and with many other people, as long as you are moved by some fear of punishment, you will keep failing. And God, strangely enough, will resist your success. Why? Well, What if by your own self-effort you did succeed? What would you become? A self-satisfied Pharisee who judges all around you who are still struggling. Yeah, we know that is what we would become because think of it. You stop smoking and all of a sudden all smokers are filthy smokestacks who stink lose a few pounds of belly fat, and all of a sudden everybody is a fat pig who has no self-respect or self-control of their appetites. Should I go on or do we all get the point? God does not want us to improve ourselves with self-effort. He will resist us even. Even if we gain a few wins here and there, Ultimately, they won't last. You lose 10 pounds and gain 15. I control my temper and then go into depression. It's it's like trying to lay too much carpet in a too small a space. You get it down over here and it pops up over there. No, what God wants is not a partnership where you do your part and God does his part. God is after being in union where it's you in him, and him in you, till you learn to walk together in union life, and that union is a growing fruit of experience from living it out day by day with God and with other people. Growing in the knowledge of such love is what then energizes us to live in our true self, So when we deal with sin in us, the putting to death of some aspect of our old self that seeks to kill out our true self, we have power to engage that battle because we know we are already loved as much as love can love, just as we are. And that increases our hunger to live more and more in that truth. So it's no longer us trying to stop doing bad things But it becomes our desire to start living out the good that is our true and full destiny. If we think of bad things as, I am so evil, how could God love me? We will then have no choice but to keep going to the bad things in order to comfort ourselves because there's no other place for us to go for comfort. It's false comfort, but that's where we go. We can't go to God. He's mad at us. We have to go to our mud puddle instead. When that backward thinking begins to be corrected and we begin to live constantly in love and we then begin to be perfected by that love we outgrow sin like we outgrow playing with mud pies. Now, if you still like making mud pies you can find you another example than the one I just used. Now, we can get into my main topic, which we haven't gotten to yet. How do we break the power of old sinful patterns that we've given up trying to overcome? If you begin to believe you are loved, and that takes practice, I know, but if you begin, then you will find your tastes are changing in the area of weakness. See, usually, whatever sinful pattern we're bound by is something we chose at some point in our past, or, or it was imposed on us by others, but we still embraced it for our own reasons. We did so because to some degree it gave pleasure. All addictions are a false medication that we turn to in order to avoid pain. Now that we know that we're beginning to believe that we are loved, we can begin to face the pain that we used our addiction to avoid. So we begin to find strength we didn't have before. See, it isn't our strength, but it's his. Yet, because he gives himself to us freely and completely, we take that strength into us and begin to act out of it instead of out of our old idols and our old thought patterns and old emotions. And that's what it means to work out our salvation We do it with awe and with willful responsiveness to God because we know it is him in us that's doing it. See, then it's him in us at the same time, but it's also us cooperating. It's not that God will do his part and you will do your part. It's God in you working so you can have the power to choose. I learned this after so many, many painful failures. But the failures were not failures because they drove me on and on into crying out to God to fix me. But he refused to fix me because what he wanted was for me to collapse in his arms, become totally dependent on him. And when I became totally dependent on him because I found I could not do anything without him, for without him, We can do nothing. I found I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The warrior is a child. God is smart. During this experience in my own life, uh, when I began to work through these things, there's some things I learned that I wrote down in my journal that I want to just read to you. Oswald Chambers says, how are you going to get the life that has no lust, no self-interest, no oversensitivity? Love that is never provoked, that thinks no evil, that's always kind. The only way is by allowing not a bit of the old life to be left, but only simple trust in God, such trust that we no longer want God's blessings, but we want He Himself. Have you come to the place where God can withdraw his blessing and it does not affect your trust in him? When once you see it as God at work within you, you will not bother your head about whatever is going on around you. Your trust in your Father uh, is unmovable. When Chambers describing uh, here the result of the very process that I was just trying to describe, where God resists our successes in order to bring us to something far greater than success, union with himself. Then I came across a quote by an author named Ed Welch who described exactly what I had gone through in that very process years before. Ed says, quote, "...strong desires, strong emotions try to interpret our world for us. But they do so in ways that do not affect our conscious awareness of their sinfulness. The passions Paul is calling us to kill often do not appear to us as enemies, but as friends, or even closer, as who we are. And they tell a story of our lives falsely, a story filled with freedom, pleasure, and fulfillment. But these immoral desires, which feel absolutely genetic, that they are warped and woofed into who we are, uh, these desires uh, cause us to feel as if we are, if we deny them, killing ourselves. This is what we were created to be. Illicit passion rarely works alone. It, it warps itself and whoop, whoops itself into loneliness or sentimentality or nostalgia. And we may feel like there's nothing really wrong with those things. Uh, they're, they're part of who we are. But they may just be part of the old man trying to keep you in the web of the past. So that you can keep feeling the feelings of the past so you will keep doing the actions of the past. may seem innocent but opens the way for all kinds of fantasy and lust and other bondages or anger. Maybe maybe it's not comforting memories. Maybe it's angry memories. Hurtful memories. Uh, Same principle. There's a kind of there's a kind of pleasure in anger you know uh, revisiting the betrayal revisiting the uh, mistreatment and uh, it produces the same kind of destruction as pleasurable lusts let's dissect this and try to digest it a little more what Ed Welch is was saying in the quote that I pointed out previously, he's saying those those besetting sins we battle are often so close to us that we actually think of them as us. And therefore we cannot see ourselves as existing without them. And therefore to give them up, since we have drawn life from them, will obviously feel like death. Until we endure that sense of death long enough For the real life to begin to pour in in the place of that false life, which was death. By enduring this process, we are killing what has been killing us. The thing killing us feels like it's life. The death of that thing that is killing us feels like death. But eventually, as we grow in faith in God's love for us, which only grows by the way, in the hothouse of this process. We eventually come out of it free of the old and living in the new. And this process then begins again and again on deeper and higher levels. The path of the just is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter till it reaches perfect noonday. We are being changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. But we begin to learn that this transformation is not a magic spell, That is, but it's very supernaturally natural. It's a process of living with Jesus and engaging with him in real things, which mostly includes people. I remember in my mid-twenties walking one time into a mall. This is back in the days when malls were the new thing and it was a big deal. Now they're disintegrating, but at the time, that's, that was the world. All the sights and sounds and uh, screamed at me, here is life, here is love, here is what you are. This is where you belong. And the Holy Spirit whispered, this is all okay in its place, but it's not life, and there's no love here, and you are not kin to this at all. But I pressed into that world. No, it wasn't a bar room or a strip club or a porn shop. But it offered all the same things in a more diluted form and hooked me and got me uh, in the same way, as if I was going to a much more manifestly dark place. That hook that promised lust in place of love, stuff in place of life, and disconnected wads of people in place of family, friendships, and connections. The same with certain music from that era. A song could take me to a place in memory where there was no life but death, but it felt like life. And I would bend into that lie and allow it to offer mirages in place of vision and shadows of things I could never really grasp. And then once the shadow vanished, I was left with the empty hole inside where I had allowed the mirage to falsely fill it, and the hole became even larger and the darkness deeper. That's what all addiction is, and we will never release it and embrace the real until we are brought to the place of seeing what is false about the old and what is true about the real. Now, once a very angry young man who had been struggling with several painful addictions said to me, more angry at God than at me, but I was handy. It just sounds like you're all saying, well, if you just decide to straighten up and clean up your life, then God will come and and accommodate you finally. And when He sees you really are trying. (laughs) Well, if I could clean up my life, I wouldn't need God to come and do it for me, would I? If I could do it myself, I wouldn't be here trying to get help, would I? And I so understood his anger and his pain. I knew because I had lived in that very same struggle. and Said those almost the same words. But see, this is the painful beauty of the way this works. We have to be brought to the end of ourselves till we are totally dependent on God's love for us, which we do not really believe in. Before the pain... I don't care how religious we are or how many correct phrases we use, we are at bottom, pretty confident in our own wisdom and ability. God's not a bully. He's not wanting to bring us to the end of ourselves so we can, he can enjoy watching us grovel. Now, that's not what this is about. He must bring us to the end of the old self-centered, false self Because to whatever degree it wins on its own, it simply takes credit for it and goes on to create an even worse mess than the one it thinks it overcame on its own. That's where Pharisaical religious meanness comes from. C.S. Lewis said, if becoming a Christian doesn't make you better, it's guaranteed to make you worse. Some of the meanest people I have ever met in my life were not in bar rooms or strip clubs, they were in churches. If, if God's going to truly help us, he will have to hurt us enough to bring us fully to him and him alone. Then, once we find he's not disappointed in us because he never had any illusions about us, we can begin to unite with him in trust and love and the process of deliverance from sin, from addiction, from fear, from shame, from all that is not of love can really begin. So, what's the first step out of this prison? Well, Jesus said in John 7, verse 17, if anyone is willing to do my will, then he or she will come to know what is true. Do you see the order here? We have spoken of it before, but it needs to be repeated. Jesus said, anyone who desires to do my will, did you get that? Anyone who desires to do my will, not anyone who does my will, anyone who desires to. He didn't say anyone who's perfectly performing my will, but anyone who longs to do what Jesus tells them to do. That longing will eventually come to bring them to understand fully the will of God. So that means when you don't have the power to do something or change something, If Jesus tells you to do a thing, whatever it is, the moment you try to obey him, you find in that moment that you can obey him. He supplies the power to perform what you used to think was unperformable. As you take your first step in attempting to obey him, You can't forgive your enemy, but you will take some action in the direction of forgiving, and something then happens, and you find you can do it. You're working out your salvation with awe and responsibility, and God is working in you to perform that, all together in union. You in him, and he with you. You can't overcome that porn addiction or Or that moment of pleasure that you turn to when things get rough. You turn to that pleasure to try to comfort yourself. You can't say no to the drink or the porn or the shopping mall or whatever it is. You don't have the power to to battle. But you find something he's commanded you to do. Whatever he says to you, you do it. You make the effort to do it. You take that first step. And the moment you do, you find an energy being released in you that will carry you beyond the first step, step by step. This is what we referred to in a previous study as faithing your way into the fullness of your true self. Faith is not a noun, it's a verb, it's an action word. And this is faithing. The just shall live by their faithfulness. You're not working for your salvation, for heaven's sakes. You're working out your salvation, which God has already worked in you when you were born of the Spirit. Father, I lift up every man and woman listening to this message. I pray, Lord, that this truth will so permeate them that your love for them is a settled fact, that it's not just religious doctrine or religious talk. You really love them exactly where they are, as they are, and you love them so much that you will deliver them from where they are into the fullness of who you intended them to be. And all religious rule keeping and fear of punishment is falling off, and in the place of it, your arms around them feel like the robe of righteousness that will give them strength to move forward. Comfort, bless, encourage your people Bring glory to your name, Father. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.